Welcome to Upthinking Finance, a podcast that offers a unique and discerning view of economics and financial planning. Here is your host, Emerson Fersh. Welcome back to another edition of Upthinking Finance. I'm Emerson Fersh. It was Wayne Gretzky who once said, you will always miss 100% of the shots you don't take. And in life, taking shots means taking risks, and taking risks typically means there's some kind of financial element involved. Now, to stick with the hockey theme, you never know whether that risk you're going to take, that shot's going to go wide of the net, go right off the crossbar, or go straight five hole between the goalie's legs and biscuit in the basket. But oftentimes, people are willing to take these shots, take these risks, because they feel they're being called to something greater. Now. Lindsay Metcalf, you may remember my interview with her, she was working with animals. She had a passion for livestock, as she said, but felt this compelled to buy this business, HomeConnect, and had the support of her husband, which was critical. But more importantly, they were in a financial situation, a lifestyle that allowed them to take on that risk. Then you have the situation with Gina DiMaggio, who had just begun her work as an artist, only to find herself getting divorced and having to make a decision whether to go back to nursing or to continue on this path as an artist with the hope she'd be able to provide for her family, which she has been. But what about the case of a person who's worked for a large company for years, perhaps an iconic one, where they've built up a huge amount of success, established a reputation, you know, not only in the within the company, within the industry as a whole, and is also further along their career path, where they're maybe in their late 40s, early 50s, you know, they financially have obligations, whether it's, you know, spouse, children, you know, financial, you know, some kind of debt, whether it's a mortgage, whatever, but decide at that point to make a change. That can be a very significant risk, not only because of the financial side of it, because, it's you know, people who, my experience has been people who leave big companies late in life, it's like leaving California. You know, the joke is you move out of California, you're never going to be able to come back. It's kind of the same thing. Companies generally aren't going to hire older people back, at least not at the salary and with the benefits they had before. But there's also the other side, which is being kind of personally identified with that company because of the success and the, the, you know, the relationship that's formed over the years. My wife made that transition. She, about 10 years ago, she had been working for a global law firm for years, had established quite a reputation, not just with the firm, but industry-wide, but decided she wanted to be home with our son as he grew up. In that case, again, from a financial perspective, fortunately, we were living a lifestyle where we weren't dependent on both our incomes, and so we were able to accommodate that. Today's guest is one of those people who made that decision. Chris Pelchinski is a seasoned creative director, designer, and illustrator who has spent most of his career in leadership at ESPN. Chris holds a degree in graphic design from Arizona State University, which is known for its Swiss-influenced design program. Now, since starting his career as an entry-level graphic designer in the late 1990s, he's worked in a number of numerous mediums and for companies of all sizes. His most notable and significant roles, however, were working for ESP, both in the Bristol, Connecticut home office, as well as in Los Angeles, California, where he led the creative process for some of the world's largest broadcast brands, which include Monday Night Football, Sports Center, and Baseball Tonight. His efforts at ESPN were recognized with numerous awards, including two sports Emmys and nine Pro Max awards. That said, in 2017 and after 17 years at ESPN, Chris took the leap and decided to walk away from company and corporate life to start his own business, Crispy Creative, which I should note, 
Crispy and Creative both begin with K's. Now having a much broader creative scope, Chris and his company are able to serve a wide variety of clients, including those in the broadcast world, film, the music industry, finance, food service industry, and of course, he still continues to do a lot of work within the sports world. I also should say, what's that catchy word we use nowadays? Transparency. That to be completely transparent, he's also the creative force behind the change in our branding and logo at Capital Investment Advisors, my financial planning and investment management firm, but also did the graphic design work for this podcast. So it's my pleasure to welcome to Upthinking Finance, my friend with Crispy Creative, Chris Pelchinski. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Emerson. Glad to be on. I guess the first place to start is when you realized you had artistic talent, because I know you went to ASU to get a graphic design degree or in the arts, but when did you really realize this is something I'm good at? When I was in school, in grade school, I was the kid in the class that can draw. There's always one kid that can draw, kind of. So I was the kid they would... The other kids would come to you to ask for their, hey, can you do a drawing of Superman or Spider-Man or whatever it might be? And so that was the only thing I could do. (laughs) I was the kid that could draw. Well, from my side of the desk, you're pretty good at it. And I wasn't the kid that could draw. So you had this talent and you went to college and pursued a degree there. How did you end up at ESPN? So it was early on, I sort of pigeonholed myself into that's what you do. Pursued a degree in graphic design because being an artist, not really knowing which way to focus myself, I wanted to focus towards something where I could actually get a job, and I was graphic design. So I went into the ASU graphic design program and graduated, and a lot of projects I had during my senior year especially were sports-oriented, which was rare because most of the people in the art school weren't into sports at all. So when I graduated, I had a friend that lived in Connecticut and he said, Hey, I've got a, I've got a friend that has a sister that works at ESPN and they hear they're hiring designers. And I just threw my application out that, you know, on a whim, like, Oh yeah, that'd be great. But how about I ever get in ESPN? They called me back not long after. And within a couple of months of graduating, I had a job at ESPN as a beginning designer. It was just sort of one of those things that happened fast and you don't really think about it. You just throw your application out there and your resume out there and uh, it happened. Yeah, I was in Arizona. I kind of pretty much grew up in the Phoenix area and they were in Connecticut. And so when they offered the job, they said, hey, when can you be out here? Can you be out here next Monday? And this is like on a Thursday or something. And I said, no, which is kind of a tough thing anyway. But especially for me, I had no money, no nothing. So I ended up having to relocate to Connecticut. I rented a U-Haul truck and hauled the car behind it. It was a total wreck. I'm driving across country by myself and the cheapest thing I could find. And I had to borrow money to do that. And Ended up relocating Connecticut. It was a fun and new experience to be on the East Coast. And it was great at first. So, I mean, that's one of those jobs where I'm sure anytime anybody asks you what you're doing for a living, well, I work for ESPN. I mean, that's just one of the cool jobs, right? I mean, anybody that follows sports or is inclined to anything like that would think, yeah, that's just got to be a great job. And I imagine in the beginning, it had to have been just really a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a ton of fun. I mean, it was like, again, being a sports fan, you go in there and you walk down the hall and you're walking by Steve Young and Wayne Gretzky and Commander Holyfield. And I got to meet Martin Hagler. That was like the highlight of my time there. But yeah, it was like, wow, it was a really cool thing. Because on the other hand, I didn't know much else because it was my first real, I mean, I worked a lot of jobs, but my first professional job out of school. So it just got to be sort of one of those everyday things where after a while, you didn't really think about it. But it was good because there was always something going on there. I was in my 20s and there's all kinds of fun stuff. And we'd go down to New York and as far as the location. But working at ESPN itself, it was a good time. We worked on shows. They had food, food catering for the people who worked on shows. And the stuff you're doing, I'm doing graphics about ASU, my school, and the Rose Bowl. As soon as I got there, and it was a pretty exciting time. And one of those things where it's almost not work at that point. You're just like, wow, 
pay really dues and get paid for it. And so it was it was a, absolutely a fun time and an interesting place to be. But that wears off after a while. You get so used to it. But, you know, for the first little while I was there, it was great. In a lifetime ago, I had a job working at a hotel at LAX. And I think the the most famous person, people I ever interacted with was I checked Cheap Trick in one time. <laughs> Yeah, but that was about it. And uh, Jimmy Connors, I remember him at the front desk with his head down. He didn't want to be recognized, but that that was about it. So you moved up in the company pretty quickly. I sort of went away and came back. I tried other things, went back to ESPN as a manager, and uh, pretty quickly worked my way up to art director and creative director. And I found it wasn't really that hard to get ahead if you, if you A, communicated. Being communicators, like, but you can fool anyone to thinking you're really smart just by communicating well, I think. So I was a pretty decent communicator, and that was the main thing. It's actually more of my organizational skills and my communication skills that led to my promotions than my artistic skills, even though I did a ton of stuff and got awards and all that stuff, but it was really that stuff that put me in a higher position. So yeah, it wasn't, a, that's, it kind of kept me in Connecticut for a while. I was thought about getting out of promotion. And so I ended up being there in Connecticut for 10 years. Wow. So you had to relocate. Yeah. It, after being in, in Bristol, working at ESPN for again, maybe nine, 10 years, I got kind of restless and I said, you know what? I really need to go back out west. I fit in better out there. And ESPN, and I didn't care. It was Phoenix, LA, whatever. ESPN just happened to be opening a new studio in LA. And so I said, oh, can I get in on that? Let me in. And my boss kind of said, hey, you know what? For our department, we're not really staffing it with a ton of people and nobody at your level. Because I was, again, a pretty high level at that point as a creative director. And he kind of tried to talk me out of it and said, hey, look, we've got this big plan. Come to my office. He showed me this big plan of the department and said, Hey, look, stay here in Bristol with us. You're going to be the senior creative director, basically running all the design. So it would have been a huge leap forward because it's an executive position versus a regular salary position, all this stuff. And he said, this is our plan. This is what we want to do. If you really want to go to LA, I can make it happen. But, you know, you're not going to get this new role. You're not going to probably be stuck for a while in your position and whatever. He goes, but we really want you in this position to sort of run the design department. It didn't really take me a long time to figure out I really wanted to go to move on for a location change, especially. So I said, no. So they let me go to LA and retain my creative director position. And I worked in LA for, I don't know, seven or eight years and basically was topped out. You're in that position and there you are. And if you want to keep climbing the ladder and get even higher, you have to come back to Bristol. I just never did. So here's a question because that's an interesting thought that you made a decision while working there. You chose lifestyle location slash lifestyle, Southern California versus more money in a place you didn't want to live. Would you say the fact that once you got to LA and you were pretty much your upward mobility was capped, did that ever play a role in you ultimately leaving? Did that have anything to do with it at all? Not really. It may be a tiny bit. It was like, hey, look, as long as I'm here, this is where I'm at. But not, it wasn't really a, a real factor at all. I was happy doing working with good people and doing good work and all that stuff. So it's funny because a lot of people that would that work at ESPN would stay there just for the job or the promotion or whatever. And again, I envy them because I think, hey, look, if you can do that, I mean, it's important to you. Everybody has to feed a family, so I get it. But it's sort of like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs or something. At that point, I was sort of on my way to figuring out who I was. And that was more important than just patting the bank account or having a better car or whatever it might be. No, man, there's something to be said for that. Just going with what feels right to you, regardless of kind of what the world tells you. I 
It's probably a whole nother topic for another podcast, but I see just, I know a lot of people who chosen, I guess, to get into that sort of blueprinted life where everything's planned out. And I don't know. I mean, I guess it's like you said, everybody's got a different path. For me, I don't know. I like the flexibility that different choices, it's not all just about money. There's a lot more going on, I think. So, so let me ask you this, because I mean, again, to the outside observer, man, working for ESPN, that's just got all these athletes. I mean, it just seems like an exciting life. When did it start to lose its luster for you? When did it just start to become time for you to go? Well, it took a while. And going to your point about the exciting lifestyle, I mean, the longer you're there, the, more, the better the perks are, right? I mean, not only financial perks and insurance and all that stuff, but they'd throw lavish parties for X Games. And I was at a party where Billy Idol just showed up and started playing music. And all the time, like, oh, I can't believe I'm here. We'd go to conferences and they'd bankroll the whole thing. It was unlimited perks at ESPN. It was crazy. To the point where you question it, you're like, how can they afford this? But at some point, again, that doesn't really matter as much. I start, It started losing its luster a little bit when it started going from sports network to more focusing on social, political personalities and things like that. And when I first got there, it was like, hey, that's where you tune in to get the scores. That's where you see the highlights. And by the time I left there, it was that's where you tuned in to see two people argue and say outrageous things. And it, for the people that worked there that were into sports, I think a lot of us just felt a little, okay, this isn't really my network anymore. It's, they still had some good stuff, but it just changed a lot. Did that coincide with Disney getting involved? I don't remember when that was, but is there any correlation there or is that just... Did that have anything to do with it at all? I'd say, so the Disney guy came in and bought ESPN or however that acquisition worked early on when I was there. So most of the time I was there, they were Disney. But I'll say this, that's a, one of the things that sort of turned me off from it as well is there's a lot of corporate stuff you got to do when you're in a big corporate thing like that. And a lot of it came down from Disney. So we would have eight-hour meetings, two-day meetings, three-day meetings, off-sites, just to discuss things like stuff that didn't seem that important to the job or that important to any of our roles, but stuff that Disney wanted to sort of go, hey, look here, pat on the back, learn about this, it'll make you a better person, and how can I realize myself, and all these things that are just sort of sound deep, but they're just corporate things, and I think everybody sees them as that, so you, once in a while you pull something good out of one of these things, but there's a lot of corporate requirements and corporate things that you had to get involved with that came down from Disney, so I felt like it probably overall was a Disney thing uh, as far as the way we turned and the way the sort of office politics and corporate culture went. It was sort of inevitable it was going to go that way. So that was a big part of it, though. Yeah. No, I was wondering. So let me ask you this. When you finally came to your just the time it's to leave, was it a hard decision? I mean, did you struggle with it or was it just, OK, I'm done? Well, I'll say this. It was a hard decision and I struggled a little bit. It wasn't, it was sort of a foregone conclusion. Now that I look at it in retrospect, it was, you can only do one thing for so long. It's, I mean, the Beatles, right? The Beatles were around for six years and they got tired of it. And then John Lennon went and made great music and so did McCartney and everybody else. You have to believe in yourself enough to go, hey, I can do something else. You get sucked into that culture and it makes it a harder thing because it's like, okay, I've got all these benefits. I've got all these things. I built this thing up. So I had to convince myself that I could do it. It was the hardest part. It wasn't really that I didn't know I wanted to do something else. It was can I succeed out there as when ESPN is not on my forehead? Because when ESPN is on your forehead, you have a lot of, again, not just work perks, but life perks. Everywhere you go, everybody wants to talk to you and your friends and people you meet. Oh, you work there? What's up? Yeah, you're like a bit of a rock star. As close as I can get to it, it felt like it because, and, and again, I didn't really get into that. It's not, I didn't really go around going, hey, I work at ESPN. I kind of downplayed it a little bit because 
I didn't really want that to be my identity, but it kind of was. That's how people know you. So the decision wasn't really difficult to leave. The hard decision was to trust myself to do something else that I can support myself doing something else and that I had the skills to do something else. Yeah, particularly later because you were older at that point. So you ended up in Vegas. Tell me about that. Yeah, you know, when I was leaving, I said my plan was to kind of get out and, again, maybe try to – my wife would always encourage me, hey, you just start your own thing. And people I work with, that people that respected me or people that I like and respected at work would always go, you'd be great with your own company and kind of thing because they thought I was a good leader, which I was grateful they thought that. So I was always encouraged to do these things. When I left, I said, you know what? I need a soft landing place. I'll just take another job. You know, I wasn't ready to fully commit to just being on my own. So I took a job in Vegas at a news station. I had worked at a news station early in my career and kind of had fun there and did, had, did some good design and got involved in the community. But when I went to Vegas, the news station was a little bit different experience. And it was sort of an eye-opener. It was one of those things where I was such a square peg at that place that it felt like there's no way this is just a chance thing. This is God or someone sending me a message that you need to do your thing because it was abundantly clear from the first day I got there that I wasn't going to fit in and it was time for me to jump off. That had to have been a little scary though. I mean, here you go, you leave this big company with all this success you had, the awards, all this stuff, and then you make this big move and then you find a place and the first day, this isn't a long-term solution. I mean, I don't know, that would seem to be a little deflating, I suppose. At the time, it was. At the time, it was. For one thing, I thought I was escaping things like, oh, maybe local thing. It'd be less office politics. It'd be less corporate thing. It was twice as much. It was twice as bad. And again, just the what we focused on, the things we did, there was so much, in my view, there was so much time that we wasted. And I'm not trying to put them down, but, you know, just the way corporate culture works, how much of your, your time, after a while in your career, your time becomes more important than money. When you're, you feel like most of your day is wasted or not used, utilized, you start going, okay, what am I doing? So yeah, it was deflating a little. It was going, hey, look, I went from the frying pan into the fire. Now it's, what did I do? And so it was at that point I said, you know what? I really have to move on and just listen to my wife and listen to my <laughs> listen to people that I talk to, listen to myself and say, I can try something on my own. I don't have to live by everyone else's rule. Well, you know, so the news is manipulated even at a local TV station. <laughs> what a surprise. <laughs> yeah, that's that way across the board. But that was another thing. It was seeing, again, at ESPN, it was the product changing from sports to gossip, TMZ type of stuff. And when I got to new, back to news, it wasn't the same anymore. It was sort of everything is sort of filtered through someone's filter. Yeah, it was manipulated. There's The stories you see, while they may be true, it's what we're not reporting on and what we're not saying and the things we choose to focus on and make big issues. News media, whether local or national, manipulates the public, I think, more than people realize. Because if for every big story they decide to push or story they decide to... That influences people. How many people are seeing that or not seeing what they need to see? So, yeah, that was kind of an issue there, too. Not only the corporate part, but just the content part and how biased or influenced it is. And it's pretty thick. It's there's a lot of a lot of like I said, a lot of filter to what goes out there. And I didn't always agree with what we were filtering. I thought, hey, let the news be the news, report everything, but that's not the way it goes. See, and that's an interesting point too, because I started off this with just talking about people taking a shot and choices that you make and the financial aspect that always I think is a part of it in some way, shape, or form. Any decisions we make often have a financial 
repercussion or consequence. And some people perhaps would be okay with that kind of arrangement, but not everybody is. And so here you are, you're at this television station in Vegas and okay, this isn't going to work. You know, what next? And so uh, that's where I guess Crispy Creative was born. Yeah, yeah. So I after the biggest thing, I said, what am I doing? And again, credit to my wife, she kept talking to me. She said, just, you've done all, you can do anything. You've done all this stuff. You've got 16 design awards, all this stuff, whatever, 12 maybe, I don't know. But she's like, you have the skills and the talent to do it. And coming from a place where, when I started, I came from kind of humble beginnings. I didn't, our family didn't have any money and a single parent household, the whole thing and growing up sort of somewhat poor on the lower side, but sort of when you get those securities and those things in your life that make you uh, secure as a person financially and things like that, it's hard to leave that and do that. But again, I started saying, well, I don't know what I'm going to do exactly, but I'm not going to do this. So I left that job. And it's funny, on the way out, I had applied for something else in Vegas that was right up my alley. And I won't say which company it is, but something I had a lot of knowledge about, a lot of people in the industry I knew. I had done a lot of work with while at ESPN. And I even knew the companies, people at the companies they were working with, the outside companies, their vendors. I knew their vendors and went in for an interview for this company. And it was one of those interviews that was like a 30-minute interview. And they really didn't listen to anything I said. And again, I had come with pretty good credentials. And it's obvious from the first minute I was at the interview that it was one one of those sort of what you do is a, a, what do you call it? A, it's a interview for show. It's okay. We've already got our candidate, but we're going to interview a certain amount of people. And that's when it really hit me. I'm like, you know what? I'm looking at another corporate job. And it's obvious sitting in this interview, even though, I'm, and I didn't brag or anything. I just, I knew a lot about that sport and that industry and I'm like, there's no one that's going to beat me on this one because I've got every everything in their job description I've got down. And somebody with a lot less experience, someone with a lot less knowledge about the industry, someone with a lot shorter career skill set got the job. And it, it was, again, an eye-opener on the way out to say, it's just you're a square pig in this corporate culture. So going out on my own, uh, that was another kick to go, you know what? Here you go. Now go do your thing. And so... Yeah, I decided to do my thing in Vegas for a while, and then we eventually moved back to Phoenix here, where I'm where I grew up, and my business took off after a slow start. It took off, and I don't even I don't advertise, I don't see clients. I've got so many clients, I don't know what to do with them now. So it's worked out really well, and I'm my income's back to kind of where I was when I was with these corporations. So it's something you don't think you can do it, or you doubt yourself, but you really have to look. You really have to look at what you're capable of because a little bit of an eye opener to me that I could actually do this. You said a couple things. One, I think, is interesting about how you were raised, because a lot of people I've known in life that have come from, like you said, humble means and haven't had anything, get really attached to the security that can come with the big job and the big company. And I kind of had it both sides, because I grew up, I I don't know if it's privilege is the word, because it wasn't like we were like wealthy, but my dad did well. We always had a swimming pool in the backyard, and they always had nice cars and all that. But then they lost everything. I remember that. I was two years into college in St. Louis, and then just a number of things happened, and my dad's practice went under, the house got foreclosed. And whatever lesson I took from that, was one of them was just not to get too attached, because security can come and go. That's not, that for me personally, and it sounds like that's kind of where you got to, is just you don't, there is something greater, and maybe it's if you can get by in real humble means, the other stuff is great. It's a blessing, but it's not like you're married to it, so to speak. So that's interesting. 
I'm always inspired by these stories of people that walked away from Wall Street and they're making six figures and they do this stuff. And when you really boil it down, like what I said was like, took it down to the week, to the day. Like, how much do I need to live? How much do I need to leave, live each month? How much to pay my rent or pay my mortgage and all that stuff? And when you realize it, you really only need as much as you need. And so these people that live meager lives and they work 20 hours a week, but they live great lives. I mean, to me, that became more of a thing that I would strive for than being locked in my office like I was over there for 60 hours a week. And then as your income increases, things like you just buy more expensive stuff. You live in better places. So I don't know. I think, again, like I said before, time becomes invaluable. So kind of what you were saying, I think you figure out what you need to live or how you want to live your life. And then you figure out how to do that. So that's what I did. I was like, how much do I need to live? How much? I can survive. I do this. So yeah, when you get too comfortable, you got to figure out what do I actually need? Well, it's kind of ironic because when I left, I shared in a previous episode when I left, the, I worked at a bank and I was doing well and I wasn't, I didn't have fancy people <laughs> surrounding me and they weren't giving us food every day. But, you know, it was, I had a built a reputation, had a nice title and all that and that security. But, uh, and that was the thing people said, friends and even some of my family members, oh, you're leaving all the security you have. And, you know, what's ironic is that bank that I worked for got swallowed up three times in the last however many years it's been, close to 30 now. So what's security, right? You're not just, doing your graphic design work. Now you're also running a business. How has that transition been? Because I, I know people that have never taken that leap may not necessarily see that side of it all the time. One thing you know that stands out is I've learned more since I've been on my own than I did in my last 10 years at my corporate jobs. You become a problem solver. You learn how to fix things, how to do things, how to make things please a client. And it's been a great learning experience. I'd say the biggest difference between working my corporate jobs and do working myself is I spend probably... 90% of my week now uh, actually working on things that are important and the other 10% you're doing your billing or whatever it might be, but 90% focusing on the things that I'm, that I like doing, that I'm good at and those kind of things. I think in corporate life it was more like 40%, with 60% being the stuff that you have to do or sit through a lot of sitting and listening. I don't sit and listen anymore. I work and I do things and I deal with clients and I serve them. So to me, it, it that's one of the biggest, I shouldn't say perk. I mean, that's a main driver for owning your own business and work for yourself is that you're actually doing the work and you're actually dictating your hours and choosing how to spend your week in your life. And I always look at things like you have your business and people that start their own coffee shop or cupcake shop or whatever it is. I look at those people. I admire those people. I'm like, I look at somebody who went out and started their own business and I go, wow. More than I would someone who wrote a, a wave to, I'm a corporate exec at CNN or something. And I mean, to me, that's cool. You got in, you got in, you did your work, you, you probably achieved something. But there's something special about the people that go out and they start that thing. And, you know, it, it, to me, that's these huge teams. You can have a huge team, NASA or people that build bridges. And just, yeah, it's great to accomplish those big things. But opening your own shop is a giant accomplishment for a person. So I'm always inspired by those things. So working for yourself and in and do, you have to deal with the hassles as well. But I think doing what you love to do is basically what it is or what you're here to do. I think once you realize that and you do, that's inspirational. So I look at people like you and people who have succeeded in their own businesses. And that's kind of what I admire. Thank you for that. I'm in agreement. I remember I was kind of at a crossroads, actually, when I first got this idea to, to leave the bank and start my own firm. I went and interviewed with one of the big wealth management firms. And I remember getting this tour on that they were in the top floor of some office building in downtown Long Beach, the view of the Queen Mary and the whole deal, right? 
And we're walking around and it's real posh, nice wood, really high end. And he says, so you're going to need to be ready to work 16 hours a day. And <laughs> my brain immediately, I'll never forget it. First thing I think of is, if I'm going to work that hard, I'm not doing it for you. I mean, it was just like an, a knee-jerk thing, right? It's like this innate quality or whatever, just thing that just, there's no way I'm going to bust my rear end for somebody else who's getting 60% overrides or whatever it is I'm doing and and controlling client relationships. And I guess in one hand for me in my industry, I learned pretty quick. I don't know if I shared this earlier, but I learned pretty quick in the industry that I couldn't do well in my type of work, working for somebody else, because it was clear with incentives to sell proprietary products, in-house funds, they pay you more to to push the the inside stuff. And just moving you around, you establish these bonds with people, these personal relationships with clients, which to me is the whole point of this, really, in the end of the day, it's these relationships. And they leave you in a branch for a year and a half and then pick you up, move you somewhere else and bring some guy in. So these poor clients, they've got to start over with somebody new and everybody, and we all have our own biases and stuff, but or just experiences that lead us different directions. So, but I was thinking what you said, and I was going to ask you if you found this, because one of the things I learned pretty early on that I was a talent I didn't know I had was that I had really good business sense. I just, I had a logical mind that I wasn't afraid to just make decisions that to me were pretty crystal clear that perhaps other people wouldn't be as comfortable with. You know, just, okay, well, I can't afford this. And so if I had to pick between two things, which is more important, right? But I just always had, an, I've had an ability to do that. And I don't know, that's just something that's, I think you get self-confidence as you go on taking that leap, but also realizing, like you said before, not only are you capable, but there's a lot more there than maybe you even realized you had before you, you started. Yeah. Well, it's funny you go to the decision-making thing. It's in my past jobs, decisions aren't made. There, you get around a table, you talk about things, and people are afraid to make decisions. And I, in my corporate jobs, as you might imagine, I was always a fly in the ointment, right? Somebody would say, hey, we're doing this. And I was always going, why are we doing this? And half the people after me would go, yeah, yeah, I'm glad you said something. But decisions in, in, in larger companies and corporate settings don't get made that way. So you don't ever get the confidence to make decisions. You don't really make them. You make them as part of a board or part of a meeting or part of what you make some, but when you have to actually make decisions that affect people and affect your business, yeah, you hone your skills and you get really good at it. So I think that's something that you sort of are numb to when you're in these larger companies. It's funny, and that also makes me think of a radio host that says, the bigger the government, the smaller the citizen. I think it works that way with companies too. It's the bigger the company, the smaller the employee. When you have 100 decision makers at the top and you're trying to make an impact on your company, it's a lot harder to do. So going out on your own isn't necessarily saying, hey, I'm better at this than everybody. You're just saying, I can do this on my own terms. And I think that's a big deal. And everybody's got talent. Everybody's got skills. Every person has something they can do. And the internet agent, it's a lot harder 25, 30 years ago, right? You go, I'm going to go out on my own. What am I going to do now? Internet, e-commerce, you can sell things online, you can do anything. I think it's really put a spotlight on people that really have talent and skills to achieve can do anything they want now. There's You can sell things to people in other parts of the world with the click of a button. There's like almost no limits to what you can do now. And look what we're doing now, a podcast on or two remote locations. Like you can do almost anything you want now. So it really is helping people. This technology, technology is really helping people that may not have had avenues back way back a few decades can really succeed now. So I think going back to your thing about decision-making, building confidence. Yeah, we. It, I agree. And the more you, the further you go, the more confidence you build. And I think, not to keep going, but one more thing. In the creative field, I find myself now 
all my, not all my clients, but most of my clients are clients that I'm interested in working for. They're things that I like, whether it's sports or this type of thing or that type of thing. Most of them fit right into what I'm interested in. And that's sort of a natural evolution of your interests will lead you in the right path. I think that's what happens too, where it doesn't happen so much when you're in a larger group setting with a million other people. That's a really good point. And that's something I've actually, I knew it was a problem. I mentioned, I realized the importance of the relationships with clients, but I never really realized, and this is something I've learned in the last, let's say, five, 10 years of the joy of those relationships with people. I mean, I just work with awesome clients. Amy, everybody in our office says that. Gosh, we just work with awesome people. And I mean, it's like kind of you mentioned, I'm doing something I love and I'm getting, I get paid, make a living interacting with people I really like being around. And that honestly was kind of the core for me is that's been kind of a motivator for me throughout my life and a bunch of different aspects of it is I just have this thing where I can't work for people and trust decisions for people that I just don't think either I don't respect <laughs> or I just don't, they're, I don't understand their judgment. I question it. And maybe I'm a control freak. I'll admit it. I'll, I'll own that. But, you know, in my work is I'm sure with yours, I like being the final word on what I'm doing. I like to be the one that's making that decision because I don't, I'm not afraid to own my decisions, but I don't want to be owning somebody else's decision. So can I go back to what you said about working 16 hours a day? Now I'm sure you still have those days and I have those days too. But we're working 16 hours. It's for it's in for your clients. It's not for it's not because you're told to. And instead of being defined by who you're working for, you're defining the work you're doing. You know what I mean? That's the big difference, I think. A hundred percent. And I get calls from people now. So are you still taking clients, or what's your minimum? And I don't have minimums. I don't have A, B, and C, and D clients. I just have clients, and it's people that I that understand the philosophy and buy into that. But it's just people that I can work with because in this work, when markets turn and things go down, you've got to have a rapport and a, and a relationship of a mutual trust and respect. So, no, that's a great point. And I'll just say this. So for anybody who's listening, I've got about a one-minute reel of the work Chris has done in the past that it will come up at the end of this episode that I would encourage anybody who's not watching on YouTube to go to the YouTube channel, which can be found a link to the podcast through my website. But it's really good because I think you get a real handle on on the his talent. And I'll just say for me, Chris, as we wind up, I, I really appreciate the work you've done for us. I mean, obviously, I appreciate our friendship, but I appreciate the branding because that process we went through to re, you know, come up with a logo that identified with our company and really the people that work there. And it was a reflection of just who we are. I think that was a really important process because it's initiated a lot of important discussions as types of companies I do business with, who we just, it's established kind of, it's been reinvigorating, I guess. I'm looking for the words, but it's really gotten me very excited about a consistency throughout everything we do. Um, and then the podcast, the graphic you did for this podcast is just spectacular. And that was such a cool process because it's funny, as a person who doesn't have artistic talent, you kind of have an idea in your mind. You can't like – I mean, I, I can barely – I hardly can write. <laughs> so to try and draw something or come up with a design, anything going to happen. Um, but when you have an idea of something that just in your mind, what it might be, and then when you came up with that, that like second thing back with the mountain and the path and the, my Robert Kennedy quote over that, I was just it's so satisfying. And so that speaks to what you're saying, because it's something I could never do, but yet you tapped into exactly what I wanted. And that's a gift. And that's a gift. It's also being in sync with your clients, right? 
I know you and I know what you stand for and I know, you know, that translates itself visually sometimes. So if you were some guy off the street that I didn't really agree with your, what your business was, I probably couldn't have nailed it. So I appreciate that. Thank you. I think also, I, I was noticing one thing, you know, you work with all kinds of clients. You work with me who knows nothing about financial and I work with all kinds of clients, big and small. But I think what's interesting is, is that, you know, in, in, this, in my role now, like I don't, I don't go, I'm not a missionary over, overseas doing charity and feeding poor people and housing people and all that stuff, Habitat for Humanity, all that stuff. I'm doing the best I can, you know, to work. In my, what I'm saying is in my career now, I can work with people and help them in their businesses, you know, and we help each other and do all these things. In my past corporate life, we just shot for the biggest fish, you know, hey, what's the biggest company we can get? And, you know, people are going to take you to lunch. And we, you never think about, you never really focus on the small people, the people that need help. And I think when you're a small business, you get to do that more. And it's not, again, it's not missionary work. You're making money on it. But at the same time, you're more in touch with people that actually need you. Totally. So this is great. I guess the last thing I was thinking that would be worth just broaching as we wind up here is just, was there a moment, because I have one, was there a moment when you left what started your firm where you went from, I hope this works to this is exactly where I should be. This is going to work. Did you have, is there like a defining moment perhaps? I don't know that it was a moment, but it was a series of moments that happened where I said, you know, I looked at what I was working. First of all, I was so busy with work that I couldn't, you know, I had to turn people down, which is, I didn't think would happen. And I also looked at what I was doing. And I said, you know what, I'm doing full blown sports packages for this tournament and that tournament and I'm doing uh, movie titles for this documentary coming out I'm doing all these things I was interested in and that moment kind of happened for me like real late like recently where you know my wife thinks I'm a big shot no matter what I do but I said to her I said you know what most people that I know in my field guys I went to school with are not do you know they're doing annual reports and different things like that which is cool but I'm working on a movie or something I'm interested in I'm working on these tournaments and these these big big time things. I'm working on uh, things that I never thought that I would be involved with. You know, um, doing branding for you know major television shows and stuff like that, which I never thought would I'd be doing on my own. I kind of thought, oh, you go on your own, you do small stuff. So more my realization has come more lately, where I've been like, you know, hey, look what I'm doing now. I'm doing some really cool stuff. But you never really say that to yourself until you know you're sitting there one day and it hits you and you go. I am doing cool stuff, you know? My friends aren't just blowing smoke, you know? I am doing cool stuff, so it's been recently. How about yours? Well, I so I had a business partner, actually, when I first left. This was in 95. And a year later, I learned that lesson about not going into business with your friends. <laughs> but it was unfortunate, because we were, Lee and I were pretty close, and but I just, my, the way I wanted to do things and the way he approached things, we were just different. And his way just didn't work for me. And so, we kind of severed the relationship. It was like a marriage breaking up. It was hard. It was uncomfortable and awkward and all that. And that was kind of the moment where I was about to give up. And it was July of 96. And I remember I, kind of a mentor of mine at the time said, you need to go pray. You need to go pray and just ask for, basically seek an answer. Because I had all sorts of ideas what I was going to do. Go work in Club Med. <laughs> I mean, you're, it just... The stuff you do when you're young and single, right, or become a personal trainer or something, which I would have enjoyed. But <clears throat> I, I remember I had this one night, and I was just saying one of those heartfelt prayers, and the thought came to my mind, just try. And I'll never forget it. It was like God was sitting right next to me, just try. And I remember thinking, what? I can do that. I can 
try because at least I'll know if I fail, I didn't quit. And that was like the little kernel. That's what I needed. And then I remember I called this client up that I was a former bank client. I tried to stay in touch with people and just asked him if he will come in and have a conversation. And he said he would. And I just remember thinking, man, I can do this. And that was a long time ago now. And But that was like the moment. And then, of course, just as time goes by and you know, you meet people in all these crazy ways. I met another gentleman up on feeding the on Skid Row, feeding the homeless. I shared that actually in the podcast with uh, Chris Hoke. And how does that happen? I wasn't out on the golf course because I was looking to to network. It was just me living my life, and so it's been a cool experience. And I think that's the part of this. Certainly, there's it's the work and being able to have the freedom and control your life and your schedule and all. But for me, I think there's been a, a real spiritual element to it as well. I mean, it's just been a for me, it's been a way to really see God in my life in the way the work's gone. And even meeting uh, Alex Craner, the hedge fund manager from Monaco, I talked about him with you and just that whole relationship. These things happen and you really just see that you're kind of aligned with some kind of a flow. <laughs> and I like staying in there. So anyhow, listen, I thank you, Chris, for the time. And thank you for sharing your story with us, the listeners. And I want to just thank everybody again for joining me on another episode of Upthinking Finance. Emerson Fersh is a registered representative with and securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Advisor services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and separate entity from Capital Investment Advisors. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. The guest speakers and the companies they represent are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial or Capital Investment Advisors. Individual tax and legal matters should be discussed with your tax or legal expert. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. There is no assurance that the techniques and strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. The purchase of certain securities may be required to affect some of the strategies. Investing involves risks, including possible loss of principal.